Hello, and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am one of your hosts, John McMahon, and joining me on the other line, she's just back from using questionable methods to pay off some gambling debts. It's Danielle Hanley. <laughs> Hello! That was a good one. That was, uh, I appreciate that one. Thank you. We ran through some other possibilities that I rejected before we started recording, and, I, and Danielle had high hopes for this, so I'm glad I could meet them. Totally met. Also, welcome back, everyone. It's uh, just me and John. It's a, I guess, a solo pod. (laughs) Basically, yes. Like a singular collective, like (laughs) rhizomatic brain at this point. Oh, man. My students are reading Puar for Monday and they're already emailing me like, what's an assemblage? So Yeah, that's, um, I have some thoughts we can talk about off air. I love teaching that piece in part because of the ways it makes students think. So yeah, I got thoughts. Um, probably using our podcast as the example is not the most effective <laughs> of teaching that. No, but it's like uh, two people, one brain maybe yeah. like is. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. We are, though, talking about Americans Season 1, Episode 7, called Duty and Honor, directed by Alex Chappell and written by Joshua Brand. And uh, Danielle would like to provide us with a summary, I believe. Yeah. So IMDb summary says for us, Philip and Elizabeth's troubled marriage is further tested when a mission to discredit a Polish pro-democracy leader reunites Philip with his old flame. And I think we wanted to start off the episode by discussing the use of names by said old flame and contrast that with the names that are used between Claudia and Elizabeth here. So as Danielle pointed out before we started recording, um, Claudia calls Elizabeth multiple times Nadiezhta as a means of intimidation. And that is contrasted with the way that Arena, Philip's old flame, who is also a KGB, quote unquote, illegal, based out of Montreal, uh, but they are together on this mission in New York City, um, calls him Misha, which we think is the first time that Philip's actual name, Misha, has been used in the show. So, Daniel, why did that stick out as something significant to you? Yeah, it stuck out as something significant because I think, like, it's the same pattern of, like, behavior but being used for really different purposes, right? So when Claudia is calling Elizabeth by her given name, um, and as you pointed out, which I did not know, uh, using the diminutive to do that, right? There is a power dynamic that's being exercised and a like Claudia is attempting to exert dominance and intimidate Elizabeth. That contrasts with, again, the same thing, right? Calling Philip Misha, but also the diminutive of Mikhail. Yeah. Good. Oh yeah. That I actually did know, but I had not put it together. Um, so the same behavior calling Philip by his like given name using the diminutive version of it. Right. But it is an attempt to, to sort of like bring him back to himself, to pull him out of this world. It's an attempt to entice him. And that seems to be the, the exact opposite of what Claudia is trying to do. And so yeah. I, it's interesting to me that the, that the names are being used in both of these ways. Right. Especially because we get 
after a couple of episodes ago having some Elizabeth flashbacks to growing up in the Soviet Union. And in the pilot, of course, we have Elizabeth flashbacks to training and to her being sexually assaulted at KGB training. Um, we've had some kind of joint flashbacks or joint memories to the two of them meeting one another for the first time, so on and so forth. We get uh, several scenes of kind of pure philip memories like in literally like sepia tone the color <laughs> has been all drained out to represent the you know cold and colorless soviet union or whatever of uh of misha's past um where he and arena have a relationship they meet at a park with some incredible soviet sculptures hanging <laughs> around in the park um, and Philip reveals to her that he's been chosen for the selective program. At this point, Irina has not been chosen for the selective program, and it seems like there was something she wanted to tell Philip. She holds back and is just kind of purely congratulatory. And this is after we had pre previously seen Philip recalling their first meeting. They have yeah. a meet cute on the bench waiting for a train. Philip's hair in that scene. Philip's is, hair in that scene is on point. He, he looks like a queer boy from 2021 or 2022. <laughs> like, let's be honest. Or With, he like, looks. The wispy curls, like hanging out in the front, kind of long. It's either that or he looks like the lead singer of an 80s version of My Chemical Romance. <laughs> Are those are those this one and the same? Perhaps. Maybe. One, who can say? <laughs> <laughs> so we have this kind of series of uh, flashbacks of Philip slash Misha with Arena. And then we get some bombshell news from Arena. Just potentially. Casual I casual, like pulling a picture out of her purse. Which, like, we already know because we've seen, at least in Philip's flashbacks in this episode, and the, the same flashback that we got in the sort of previously on for this episode, yeah. we've seen Philip destroy his own photos. Great catch. Yeah. Um, the photo ostensibly of Irina, but it's mm -hmm. not actually of her. But anyway, that's, like a, that's a different thing. Um, <laughs> but Irina pulls out this photo of a grown boy, <laughs> like... Who in an army uniform. Yes. Who is her son. So, like, that is sort of obvious when she pulls it out. And then she's, like, our son. And it's like, whoa. But a scene later, right? Yeah. Like, first it's just she tells Philip that she has a son. And yes. the next time they're together, he's like, it's our son. Yes. And it's like, that's a that's an information bomb right there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, Maybe we'll come back to this in Daniel Dossier, but like I am skeptical of this being Philip's son. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a challenge to Philip, who between he and Elizabeth is the one constantly pulling himself away from the Soviet Union. He's the one that wanted to defect. He's the one that likes it in America, so on and so forth. So it's different uh, perspective or different standpoint or different like trajectory. A, to get these nostalgic flashbacks, and B, to find out that he, according to Irina, has a son back in the Soviet Union somewhere, as a way to, like, reverse his kind of comment, I am moving, traveling away from the Soviet Union and my ties to it or my belief in it or whatever. And now he's back seeing Irina for the first time in a long time, or yeah. possibly for the first time since they, since they, you know. Part. I don't think we're meant to believe that. That's possible, though. I think. Um, I think, like, yes, first time in a first time, like maybe first time in a long time. It. I got the sense that he knew that she was in. 
right the service right that's true that's true um because um, he didn't or, seem surprised about the fact that he was going to see her yeah but there was point. tension around it but that tension didn't seem like it, it wasn't like oh god I, I like didn't even know that she was a part of this it was oh god we're going through our own shit and we were we're, we're both just tortured Right. And Elizabeth knows that Philip is going and Arena is the other person on this mission. Yeah. So there's that added layer of tension between the two of them. So and the knows. multi-directionality of the yeah. nostalgia, the memory, the feels, all of it is really, really complicated, right? It's troubled is what the IMDB called the called the situation, which seems, to put it lightly. Yeah. Well, and like, I don't know, a there is one way to read this, right? Where like, it's really challenging for Elizabeth who like, it does seem to be the more impacted by the torture, right? Like in a, in a general sense, also at the end of the last episode where she goes back to Gregory, like that, like the emotional fallout does seem to be more like intense for her um, and the way that she reacts to it. And so we also get a little bit of that in the car, when she drops Philip off at the, and I'm putting this in quotations, the Virginia station when they are very obviously either on Long Island or in Westchester. We have several transit logistics and continuity thoughts coming later in the episode. We promise. (laughs) (laughs) And to like turn the twist, the screw like one more time, it's now arena who is proposing defection to Philip. After Philip had proposed it to Elizabeth in the pilot, and that becomes a sticking point between the two of them, obviously, including in the previous episode. And here it is, Arena, who is like, I have the plans. I have my passports and my money ready. I have a ticket for you to join me in this defection scheme. Um, And it's like another defection timeline. There's storyline question that comes to your point right after the Philip had been tortured by his own people. So, and yet Philip doesn't go. Well, I have a question for you because I know what I thought. And I know that you watched this for the first time a while ago, but the first time you saw this, did you think that Philip was, was going to go? No. Yeah. Me neither. I like, I like never had a doubt. I figured there was going to be some complicated, like emotional something or other, but I never, I never thought that Philip was going to go on that, uh, go with her and defect. And so I think that says something interesting about the dynamic between Philip and Elizabeth and like the relationship sort of like scaffolding that is, that has been happening in the, in the episodes over the last now seven episodes. Right. And so Arena tells Philip that they don't care about you. They don't care about any of us as witnessed by them torturing (laughs) Philip a couple of days. I know (laughs) I got the shit beaten out of me. I get it. And Philip responds by saying, well, I have a wife and I have a family and that's real. Yeah. And then Arena is like the only thing that we're told is real are duty and honor, which of course then like gets into this constant question that season one and the entirety of the show is asking about is the relationship between Philip and Elizabeth about duty and honor or how genuine a connection of love or kinship or whatever it is they have with one another. But I think also it, I mean, I think this is a place where you and I as political theorists who are, who are often thinking about the intersection of all of these things of duty, (laughs) honor, romantic love, patriarchy, right? Like obligation, all of these different things. 
is that I think one of the things that is really interesting to watch over the course, at least of this season, and who knows like where this goes, but one of the things that's interesting to watch is the way in which romantic love is not the only sort of like binding agent for a family. And I, I think like we can spin that out and say duty and honor are present even when people are not KGB spies like under. Absolutely. <laughs> right. And so I think it's asking, a, there's a way in which it's asking us to ask bigger questions about the nature of relationships and what we assume to be undergirding relationships versus what might actually be, or might be sort of like in tandem. It's an excellent point. And I wonder, though, if it's more that this show is opening up that possibility, and it's more that they will explicitly ask those to the characters and to us as audience members and confront us with that a little bit more, actually in later seasons, I think, than they have even so far here. I think it's more an opening than a confrontation. I'm excited about that. (laughs) So the flip side of this is Claudia and Elizabeth, as you pointed out, and... I don't know how, how how did you read their mutually threatening interaction? Yeah, I mean, this was really interesting. I think the the notes I I have for myself, uh, like the quotes that go back and forth. I'm sorry I didn't kill you, which is Elizabeth, and then mm-hmm. Claudia's like, better luck next time. <laughs> I know, right? and I think that really exemplifies this dramatic shift in their relationship, which is before the torture, we saw Claudia really trying to like cozy up to Elizabeth and say, look at the ways in which we're similar and look at all the stuff we've gone through together because we're both women in this world. And now it's like, you have broken my trust, right? And Mutually, so like in both directions. Yeah, and it's just like, I don't know, part of it for me was I understand why Claudia is frustrated. Like she got beaten up and that obviously sucks. And she wasn't expecting it, but I'm not entirely sure that that's justified given the circumstances. Like to me, Elizabeth, like Elizabeth was such an easier character for me to put myself in her shoes because I would feel, maybe I wouldn't be like, I wish I killed you, but I would, I would still be feeling very angry because not only this service that I have devoted my life to and given everything else up for is doubting my allegiance but it is also infiltrating this marriage that I'm trying that I am trying to build a foundation of right and I think like we're meant to read Elizabeth's lingering um like anger as deeply connected to the dynamic with Philip I think that's a really generative way to look at it and puts into perspective the way that Claudia in this first season in particular, and this will then be a question in later seasons, the extent to which she exists as a character to point out that as devoted as especially Elizabeth seems to be to the cause and is in fact to the cause, there is by contrast, she is, Elizabeth is shown by contrast to Claudia to be not quite as devoted as possible, right? Because at least like as a character whose interiority we have much less access to, Yeah we really only see from Claudia pure devotion to the cause. Yeah. Well, and I I think that that's a, that's a very astute observation about like that Claudia for the audience allows us to measure Elizabeth's devotion and Mm. see where she falls short. 
right? We don't, at least until now, we haven't learned anything about Claudia's married life, family, et cetera, et cetera. She is only like the, like the handler, you know? And Elizabeth, for all of the frustrations and, and complications that it brings, has a family, has a husband, like has a life to go home to. So there is always this like temptation mm-hmm. outside of um, like outside of the KGB. And presumably Claudia, who we're led to believe is incredibly competent at handling spies, um, as competent as she's made to be, presumably knows that about Elizabeth. And so there's got to be a and there's a, then there's a question raised about how intentional Claudia's threatening strategy that shift to being threatening mm-hmm. in this interaction with them is in response to what she observes about that dynamic or that access that elizabeth has to a different kind of realm yeah that is shot through with the kgb but also is trying to maintain some sort of emotional sustenance beyond it or something well and if we think back to the last episode right like elizabeth only stops beating claudia up when philip pulls her off of, of yeah. her off of claudia and so yeah. like I, the, the, like, better luck next time is, is we maybe read that as, like, maybe if you were more devoted to this, like, you would have gone all the way, right? Like, Mm. kind of a little jab at that, like, Mm. well, you had your husband to, like, back you up. Like, I could see that that, I could see a subtext there. Yeah. Um, There's also a great, Carrie Russell, when Claudia apologizes, and of course we can question how sincere or not, yeah. Carrie Russell's hmm <laughs> as Elizabeth is really wonderful. The best hmm in TV history. Agree. Fully agree. <laughs> I think this then maybe brings us to kind of one of the other central dynamics or dyads we wanted to talk about in this episode, and that is the Nina Stan situation. Yes. Um so I don't even know where do where do we start here? So it's interesting, right? Because the Nina Stan situation is always already like intertwined with the Stan Sandy situation, right? right? And so the starting point is that Stan, of course, calls to be like, I'm not gonna be at dinner. Like we know. We knew that they were coming to dinner and Stan was never gonna get there. <laughs> To that point, before you continue, I just want to point out that there's some pairings that are different. Like, we get the just pure Elizabeth-Sandy pairing yeah. for the first time in this episode that is contrasted with Stan's, like, out getting drunk with Amador. <laughs> um, and Sandy tells Elizabeth that she envies her, right? Yeah. Because, like, her and Philip work together, and they have the travel agency, and they're, like, home for dinner, and, you know, all of that. Listen, Sandy, what you don't know won't hurt you. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, um, so we get, so Stan calls to say he's not coming. He's like in his cubicle looking at files, doing FBI nonsense. (laughs) The only apt description of what he's up to. (laughs) I really was surprised that he had a cubicle. I think that was like my big takeaway from that part. But anyway, um, Amador comes and is like, come on, we like gotta go out. You gotta, you gotta like, 
you know, loose enough. It's a very broy appeal. Oh my god, the broiest. A little appeal. too broy for, for me. Not, for not the first time in this episode, are there broy appeals that Chris makes to Stan? Yeah, so they go to the bar, which the inside of it is the same as the one that like Nadia was, at, or not Nadia, that Nina was at like a couple of episodes ago. Right, with the congressional intern. Yeah, exactly. So they go to the bar, and then this is like a question that I have, and we can get into this a little bit more later, but like Chris is like, you need some strange, like, come on, man, like get out there. And I want to say two things. One it's like, this what dudes do to each other. And I, I would like to, for the record state that I've never been involved in such a conversation and great. either in any role great for the record. Amazing. But the second thing is that, there is a way in which, at least makeup and lighting-wise in the episode, Stan does look better at the end of the episode after <laughs> he has sex with Nina. <laughs> right. So so he has this conversation with Chris. Chris is like, there's a woman at the other end of the bar who's been checking you out. Uh, I'm going to go, you know, time to let the big dog hunt or something. Uh, like something terrible. Other... <laughs> Who the fuck is that supposed to mean? Something terrible. And so what does our friend or not friend Stan do except call up Nina for no reason other than that he's a little bit drunk and really wants Nina? Yeah. And then they hook up in the car and then they're like in a hotel room. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ugh. And so Nina, I mean, there's the, there's this constant question of who is running who that we've been asking 100 and here we have nina where i don't know i i read her character here as both essentially being coerced into having sex with stan because her really only hope at this point is to uh convince stan to like get her out yeah right and to you know to exfiltrate her and at the same time, Nina is also running Stan, right? Absolutely. She says, I wanted you. What happened happened. I'm not going to use this against you. This incredible line that she has about you Americans see everything as white and black. And so in the Soviet <laughs> Union, we or in Russia, I forget what she says, everything is gray. Yeah, it was like, which is just an incredible line. Incredible. Um, <laughs> Aesthet- aesthetically also, like, yeah. very spot on. Yeah. Yeah. Also... My hackles are up because, like, you don't say, I'm never going to use this against you without at least some intention to <laughs> use it against you. We can, like, put a pause in that. But Do you yeah. think Stan gets that at all? Like, or is he too I think smitten? That... Smitten is, like, a very chaste way to look at, like, <laughs> what is essentially a, like, coercive relationship. Yeah, I mean, I, one, I don't think that Stan even realizes that he's coercing her to sleep with him. And I think he has zero sense of that whatsoever. And so I think because he has zero sense of that, he also has zero sense of like the, that she's potentially running him. That being said, I do think he goes to his boss, right? And we get a great interaction there. He goes to his boss one, if we're reading it this way, because he's being run by her to go to his boss. But also I think because there probably always is a fear that, like any anything any anyone has on Stan can always be used against him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the the interaction with Gad at the FBI office oh the next God. day is 
totally fascinating, right? So Gad first is like, we're never going to exfiltrate her. You can keep trying to tell me that, but like, it's just not going to happen. That's not what we do. So there's that. And then she said, then he says she could uh, have you and me for breakfast. Has she <laughs> had you for breakfast, Dan? Question mark. Um, does not Gad answer. With a very knowing, does not answer the look. But there's there's a way in which um, I mean, like little, little does Gad know, but also how much does Gad know is a question. Oh, um, Gad sees that post sex glow, and there's the glow up, right? Because what the glow up lasted till the next day um, for for our boy Stan. Um, and there's a certain way though in which what Gad is doing to Stan and like running Stan is not dissimilar from a totally desexualized thing of what. Stan is doing to Nina, like the like use of manipulative lines of questioning and the pretend, the uh, pretension to an exchange between equals that is totally shot through with power relations and uh, forms of coercion and not so subtle coercion. Yeah. There's a certain way in which like the gad to uh, gad to Stan is similar to Stan to Nina in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is absolutely right. And I think that the difference is that Gad is very aware of the power dynamics. Correct. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Stan is, I think, willfully ignorant of them. Correct way to put it. Um, But at least not focusing in on, on the dynamics. And I think that's the big difference. And, like, ultimately, in going to Gad and being like, we have to get her out of here, Stan reveals his hand, right? Which is whether Gad, like, had him tailed, which I'm sure that he does. If it were, like, I could never... If it were you. (laughs) If it were me, I would be tailing everybody. (laughs) We have have established your conspiracy mindset. I could never work for like the FBI or the CIA because I would just be like that blue car is following you like (laughs) it it would be it would be like an explosion (laughs) but I think that Stan plays his hand because or he shows his hand to Gad because Gad possibly could have been a bit more there, I, I suspect there was there would be a way to work for Stan to work Gad, but he's not doing that. Yeah, no, right? not at all, not at all. And I think he's, that again is like okay, he's not, he's at least not aware of the way in which Nina's manipulating him because correct. he actually ostensibly could have that same kind of power over Gad if sort of played smartly. An excellent point. It it confirms his inability to think about what this is doing to his and Gad's working relationship. Yeah. Confirms the willful ignorance that you identified yeah. of uh, of the Nina situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stan. Stan. Meanwhile, Sandy's there hanging out with Elizabeth, having some wine. Matthew is pissed that Stan is never home. If this were. The if this were today, Matthew would definitely be on like some Reddit message boards and like at the January sixth rally, like, <laughs> like, wow. 
I don't know. It just was like, ooh, this dude is ready to get radicalized. Maybe he would get radicalized in the other way, which is like com- full communism now. <laughs> Maybe that's, <laughs> that's what Page is doing. Oh, now there's some like pre-Daniel Bassier. <laughs> just a little taste. <sighs> I think it's also a good time. So this is literally the median point of this first season mm-hmm. for Danielle and I to, you know, and it actually works both time-wise in our own lives to, to do midterms, uh, a midterm oh, check-in. <laughs> I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. <laughs> uh, or we, we can frame this like, I'm sure you do something about this for like, you check in with your class and they get to kind of like anonymously say, here are things that are working. Here are things that could be improved. Yeah. Um, so we can think about it in that way instead of like a test. <laughs> Uh, if, if we would prefer just about the season of the Americans. And I want to, I want to let you go first as the, as the uh, novice to the Americans. I mean, you're, you're no longer a novice to the Americans, like podcasting for seven episodes about it. Like you have reached expert status, <laughs> clearly, but yeah, I mean, I think that like something that really works for me is the Philip Elizabeth dynamic. And I think this is something that you brought up in, I believe it was in our first, in the, our first episode and, and the first episode is like the way in which they, right. That was the episode where they end up and they have this like incredibly steamy sex scene in the car, um, sort of after yeah. a lot of intense mission stuff. Yeah. And I think that like their dynamic and the sort of complicated overlays of the KGB question, who's running who, et cetera, et cetera, plus the like, this is a marriage and we've decided that this is actually going to be a marriage and we're parents, which sometimes they forget about, like <laughs> when they're being tortured. Um but I think the Philip Elizabeth dynamic is like the strongest part of this show. And it really, I can, I can really understand why working together in this way brought these actors together in like a romantic relationship outside of the show. Yeah. I mean, so I am going to go in a slightly different direction because as Danielle knows, one of my pet peeves of <laughs> podcasting about pop culture is when no one can feels like they can ever say anything negative about <laughs> the thing that is being discussed. <laughs> um, one of my like number one yeah. podcast pet peeves. Um, there's another one, which we have never uh, done. I don't think we ever will, but we can get into <laughs> it if we need to, that I think Danielle also knows. Um, and the, in the historiography of Americans' criticism, season one is understood, I would say correctly, to be by far the weakest and worst of the seasons of the Americans. Awesome. And I was thinking about that um, as going into this episode. So I was like very primed to think about the ways in which this episode exemplifies some of what are understood to be, and I think correctly understood to Mm -hmm. be some of the flaws with the first season. Yeah. So maybe I can like throw out some of the common criticisms that are made of the first season and get your response. Perfect. So one of them, perhaps the most common criticism of the first season is like there's too much of it. And I don't know who coined this phrase. I don't remember. But it's like a crisis of the week sort of thing yes. where there's just constantly like gigantic major things happening from one week to the next in a way that moves like the pure plot along oftentimes way too quickly. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I would say that I wasn't necessarily feeling that, but I would say something that is weak for me in the show, which I think is connected, is the, like, 
trying to keep track of how the story, the storylines in each episode are connected to each other. Yes. Yes. Has been a challenge. It's something that talking about it every week in the podcast helps me do, but like trying to, to keep track of it. So then I think like the temporality of the show is just like a little bit confusing to me. Like, are we a day after they were tortured? Are we three weeks after they were tortured? Like we didn't get to see how they got the sort of like how they got the information about this particular like mission in New York. And so, yeah, yeah, I, I, it's not necessarily the, like the crisis of the week that is frustrating to me, but it's like, and I think part of this is like, it's the first season. So we're, we're getting the pieces on the board, but like, I still don't have a great picture of what the board looks like. Yeah, I think that's a useful way to put it. And I mean, even in this episode, the part, the two scenes or maybe three scenes, I guess, where Elizabeth and like this incredible jet black wig um, <laughs> is trying to like recruit one of the like people below the person that they, she ended up shooting so that she didn't, he didn't get caught meeting Vasily a couple episodes ago. Yeah. Um, that is so disconnected aesthetically, emotionally, character-wise from the rest of this episode. Totally. But I think that that is, really exemplifies this dynamic that you're... That is the plot-wise connection to the season as a whole. Yeah. And it feels totally disconnected from the rest of this episode. Yeah. And I think, like, even something as, like, simple as reminding us of the name of the guy that was that she shot, right? Like in the previously on could have been helpful. I don't know. There's it's like, okay, I'm glad that we like saw Philip with that picture on the previously on, but also like who cares that gets the exposition that this is somebody from his life is like laid out in the show. So like remind us of these like bigger pieces that are now still in play. Yeah. In fact, in us discussing the episode, I had like forgotten that that stuff happened. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> right, like it was only fodder for my intro for you. Yeah, and that's, I think, the only plan either exactly. of us had to bring it up in this episode. Yeah, though it is a great wig, so. It is. Yeah. Um, okay, what are some of the other criticisms? Some of the other criticisms are, there's the, there's the broad version of the criticism, and then I'll make the, to give the two specific examples of it, um, that generally there's just not enough character work that is done to explain or to not explain, but to like illustrate or kind of give us as audience members some kind of implicit understandings about what characters are thinking and feeling and what is motivating them. And the example that is commonly held up is Philip as someone who is like radically bouncing back and forth from I wanted to defect. I'm totally committed. I'm going to go kill this guy that abused you, Elizabeth. I'm going to New York to sleep with my uh, long lost lover from before I became a KGB spy. But like Philip in particular, there's a lot of character work done in terms of just a lot of shit happens. But the somewhat similar to the previous concern, the emotional connections or the emotional development is doesn't always keep track with the other dimensions of the character development. Interesting. I don't feel like that about Philip okay. because I think for me, Philip is decides what to do based on those around him, I guess is like the best mm, way that I can say it. And so like he has decided that Elizabeth is like his anchor. And even though that gets challenged, and I think, like, he doesn't always act 
like sleeping with Arena is a, is is a good example, but like the fact that he doesn't tell her that he slept with her, I think is indicative of like where Philip's feelings about Elizabeth are. And so the like the defection, not defection, I think like those track with Elizabeth. I think that if Elizabeth had said, yeah, let's go, he would have been out of there. But like, he's committed to her and he's committed to their family. And like, and he is, I think, in the third place committed to the mission. Mm. Right? Whereas I think Elizabeth, Elizabeth's motivations are clear, are much clearer because she's just committed to the mission. And now we're seeing her falter in a different way. That is brilliant analysis from from Danielle. (laughs) In this moment, I think that's a there's a bigger problem with how the show is using Nina in like terms yeah. of character to plot development without emotional development yes. and the like making her having her character like sleep with Vasily to the trapping Vasily to the now sleeping with Stan like literally happens in the span of three episodes, yeah, yeah. um, maybe two and a half episodes, yeah, right, if we were just kind of cut it down more finely than that and it's like that's just still and again nina will get a lot more character development emotionally later on okay um in successive in the rest of this season and into the second season in particular um and so like that's not necessarily a huge problem but like i think she's actually the perfect example of the yeah maybe some of the characters get a lot of plot without the emotional developments keeping pace yeah and i think nina's a character that i like want to know more about her motivations i want to know a little bit more about her backstory and i think like what it sounds like is we're going to get some of that and that makes sense or maybe we'll get a little bit of that i think like we get we get the backstory from Stan. We get, we, we have the sort of emotional, there's like the emotional weight from Sandy. Right. So like, and, and they're kind of like less complicated in a way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm not. Stan's um, a bad partner. Like it's very simple. Stan's a bad partner. And also good FBI agent, not great FBI agent, (laughs) mediocre to good FBI agent. Yeah. Uh, bad partner. Stan is, exactly the the person who is good at being like embedded right because Mm -hmm. he is someone he seems like an empath like he takes it all on right and so a to your earlier point a parallel between he and philip exactly exactly that's why they love racquetball so much (laughs) exactly what i was gonna say (laughs) Um, so then the last kind of major uh critique that is sometimes launched against the uh first season of the americans is that and this is more by contrast to what is coming than it is like the first season as a standalone entity but that especially in comparison to later seasons just the general thematic work um pales in this first season in comparison to the kind of thematic and emotional depths of and complexity of the later seasons which i would say is a totally accurate um sort of sort of observation but the fact that like <laughs> we're podcasting about the first season and so we're like on the on the very very close lookout like scouring yeah. uh, the records for the for the thematic and emotional complexities that are being generated by the episodes, I think highlights me to more emotional complexity in the first season than I probably assumed was there. I see. I see. Yeah. I mean, I haven't felt that. I also, I think you know this about me. I'm a generous TV watcher where I'm like, did this episode or does this show pull me in? And 
a little bit less about like, ooh, is this incredibly complex? Because so much of the rest of our lives involve like picking apart like complexity. And so this is why I love Marvel. (laughs) Like, I'm just like, (laughs) did this entertain me? And so as of now, like I'm incredibly entertained by the show. Are there things I wish it did better? Absolutely. Yeah. But like I'm entertained by it. So I'm not like feeling that as much. Yeah. And so thus to kind of sum up this and then we can move on to, to segments is, you know, the general framing and the historiography of the Americans is that the first season is an exceptionally well done spy thriller yeah. with some emotional depth. Yeah. And it becomes a really, really great spy thriller with extremely beautiful and intense emotional depth as it goes on. Uh, I'm right. So, so like excited. it's more it's more on that like entertainment level in the first season. Yeah. And it maintains that, but adds many, many layers as it uh, goes over time. And, like, you can see, right, just, like, taking a step out of this show in particular and thinking a little bit about, like, the way that TV gets developed, right? Like, you can see that, like, from the pilot and then from the episodes, like, okay, it's clear that this pilot is getting picked up. It's, It's clear that the first season is like is a go and then you can see that this is laying some really impressive groundwork but like hasn't worked out all the kinks and like yeah this is a like really impressive first season i like i think i've talked about it on the show before but i love the west wing and i think the west wing is also a show that has like a great first season but it's not the best season of 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 tv i would say like the West Wing's second season is, is like unparalleled. Yeah. And I can see the way in which this is putting pieces together for, for payoffs that will like, that will be much more satisfying. Yeah. I mean, the consensus is that season one is the weakest season two is an improvement. Seasons three through five are some of the best TV ever made. And there's mixed reviews on the final season. But I also feel like, doesn't this have a, I feel like, (laughs) Our favorite TV critic, Andy Greenwald, like loves your the your season. favorite. I have uh, you have other. right. You have others, but my favorite t- former TV critic, Andy Greenwald, do love, um, do love Andy Greenwald. Loves the sixth season. Yeah, I I'm I as the audience will find out in 24 years. I am a huge <laughs> stand for the sixth season. I don't know. A we've, huge stand for the sixth season of the American. I don't know. We've only been oh, doing gosh. this for a few months and we're that's already true. halfway through the first season. So it should that's, only take us true. about six years, um, <laughs> not 24. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will say though, that in this is uh, my, if I remember correctly, for the first several seasons, the creators of the Americans never knew ahead of time whether they were ever getting picked back up again. Um, and it's only after the fourth season aired and it was like, there will be two more seasons. And it was picked up for those final two seasons at, at one time. Mm-hmm. So they could then kind of plan the final two seasons out. But my understanding is that the uh, fields in Weisberg, like we're constantly like, we don't know whether there's going to be another season. Well, and so then to like the point you were making, perhaps it's not as surprising that there's a little more, you know, 
uh, mystery of the week quality yeah. to this first season to draw viewers in, right? Then like to establish some of kind of the plot foundations to set up the emotional depth, like all of those sorts of things. Like the ser- like how serialized the show becomes changes a little bit over time yeah. as it does for most TV shows, yes? Yeah, and I think also like we've talked a little bit in our episodes until now about like, the way in which the show plays with scale. And I think like that's something that also needs to happen in the first season of a show, especially one that, that is going back and forth between like these different registers and these different like places um, and levels. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, I don't know, I guess I see the critique. I'm sure that after we watch more seasons, I'm going to be like, Oh yeah, 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 totally valid. But right now I'm just kind of like enjoying the ride. So beautiful. Here we are. Should we get into some segments? I can't wait. Okay. <laughs> All right. So first segment is borrowed nostalgia for the unremembered yes. 80s. Our first guest failed to find out. Absolutely failed. to failed. know what the... <laughs> and to... I don't remember if this was on the air or not, but I offered for Amy to text me on the side if she wanted to know what it was, and she didn't. So yeah, of sorry. course she didn't. I'm not, I'm not surprised, <laughs> um, which, is, which is a slam on me naming a ridiculous segment in a ridiculous way. Or a great segment in a ridiculous way. Not, uh, I'm not trying Amy there. <laughs> um, okay, so the first thing in Borrowed Nostalgia <laughs> for the Unremembered 80s is uh, I just want to make sure that all of our listeners know that the first lines of the episode are, and I quote, you do not need more leg warmers page, (laughs) which like I wrote down in my notes. I was like, this is a beautiful opening and perfect for borrowed nostalgia. Um, It is. (laughs) And, and does thematic work too. Right. Cause like, Everybody in the Jennings household is fighting with everybody else, right? Yeah. There's the long-standing <laughs> Elizabeth Phillip conflict from the leftover from the end of the previous episode. Uh, Elizabeth and Paige are fighting. Paige and Henry are fighting. No one is happy in the Jennings household. No one is happy. And also, like, I still don't know what leg warmers are good for. <laughs> <laughs> As someone who's generally warm in all environments, <laughs> um, I have never felt the need. Let me like tell you what worse. part of my body doesn't get unnecessarily cold. It's not my shins. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> I don't need like extra sweaters for my shins. <laughs> I will say if I'm like going out for a bike ride in like November in the morning in Plattsburgh, New York, I definitely have like a couple layers of socks on and I have like those like wind guards you put around your shoes. So those kind of function like leg warmers. So maybe I should take back my leg warmer skepticism. Paige is not riding her bike on a lake. Okay. That is correct. (laughs) She's just (laughs) hanging around the mall and like, there's not like going to school air conditioners on your shins. Like leg warmers make no sense. My mom was a dancer. We all took ballet. Like we all had leg warmers. And I was like, what are these? Why? And, like, they're meant to, like, go over your shoes, but then they get dirty. Anyway, (laughs) you heard it here first. Hot take, leg warmers are dumb. (laughs) But that's not our only fashion. I have, we have more fashion criticism in this episode, and that is this episode, particularly Philip going to the travel agent (laughs) conference, there are two elements to this. There's a show element, then there's a personal element in Danielle and I's uh, life. Of uh, the amount of bad suits oh, in this episode so reaches suits. its apex, uh, just like 
so baggy, way too many pinstripes. Oh Someone God. please call a fucking tailor oh for my lots God. of people. Which is not a criticism of the show. Like I'm I have no. no doubt that the eighties were full of terribly fitted suits. Um I'm gonna tell a story, I'm not gonna use names, but there is a professor that I know who famously is like a relatively like small in stature man and famously wears suits today that are like seven sizes too big and other professors will comment and be like well we tried to like offer to take that professor shopping and like nope still wears like very large suits and so there's something about the like the the 80s bad suit like weight things are too big no one has a tailor that like brings me back a little bit to like oh it just like wear things that fit you they don't have to be tight but wear things that fit you correct correct um i will be asking danielle after the show who this person is do not worry <laughs> i bet you could guess who made the comment though <laughs> you don't have to I'll guess on air. <laughs> um, and also, there's just the travel agent conference. Bad fashion oh my God. is clearly a, you know, Danielle and I going to political science conference. Oh. Although, to be fair to the travel agents, I saw zero ill fitting, or I saw zero blue blazers with <gasps> ill fitting khakis. And I was just at a political science conference, and I yeah. feel like I got my eyes were just like, there was violence. And you were on my at eyes. one of the good ones, like the per capita yeah. blazers and bad khakis at the conference you were at is way lower than mm. other political science conferences you and I regularly attend. Honestly, I feel like that's here's why it wasn't corrected this time around because it's been so long since anybody was at a conference because of COVID that they were like, let me break <laughs> out my best khakis. <laughs> <laughs> it was like both people who were like, what do I even wear to a conference? Which was where I was. And then it was like, let me break out my best khakis that I haven't worn in two years <laughs> that like don't fit in either of the different directions. It was like very, it just was like, Oh God, political scientists, like enough with the khakis. <laughs> yeah. Um, you <laughs> thank you uh, audience for uh being here as we express uh as we have khaki therapy time <laughs> the only other bar of nostalgia i want to highlight is just i believe this is the second episode yeah. where we get discussion or mention of the solidarity movement in yeah. poland where obviously this main character Belyovsky, is uh set to be a like leader in ex in exile of a reformed like shadow government uh more democratic presumably associated with solidarity so the whole kind of like premise of the crisis of the week is there and also in that opening scene that danielle so rightly highlighted is most important for the leg warmers factor most important the second most important there is a news report about solidarity in the background that henry finds excruciatingly bored oh my god henry is so bored I think there's the one other thing that I wanted to touch on in Borrowed Nostalgia is um, the Walkman of mm. <laughs> those like big fluffy like yes. Walkman headphones. Matthew has the yeah. Matthew has Walkman the Walkman yeah. on, and I was just like, it really like took me back. Will it surprise you to learn that Matthew is in a mediocre high school band in later seasons? No, of course not. <laughs> not at all. 
Not at all. I mean, I was saying this, uh, like, I just, Matthew, I'm excited about Matthew. I'm excited about where Matthew goes. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, let's move on to minor character of the week. Yeah. So- I think Danielle and I have the same minor yeah. character of the week, which is clearly, um, Philip is at the conference. Yeah. He's like, I'm here. I have to pretend to be this travel agent. Uh, and he gets accosted by actually someone I've like never been accosted in this manner at a conference before, which I guess is something good about political yeah, scientists. Yeah. Or says something about political scientists <laughs> by a travel agent from Boston who is like the most obvious and most obnoxious networker, any like go getter, earnest, try hard networker that anybody has ever met in their Philip life. Philip is not even in the room yet, and this right. dude is like <laughs> one foot in the door yeah. of the conference. Yeah. Uh, no, this guy does not have a name, at least doesn't have a name for us. Like, he is trying to, like, set up Philip with, like, some Ponzi scheme. Like, it's just, like, <laughs> <laughs> wearing an ill-fitting suit and, like, handing out cards. And Philip's like, okay. My favorite thing, though, is that the second interaction with this guy, where Philip is, like, clearly on the way to, like, do something important, which we then later find out, is, like, we, we sort of see that he's calling the the other guy but he's like oh we gotta we gotta talk we gotta this we gotta that and philip's like oh yeah yeah, yeah. definitely buy me a drink like and then we get to see philip use this like very slick <laughs> trip sit drink move and i i yeah. just like really love this dude for giving us the opportunity yeah. to see philip with those skills good Good, strong physical comedy moment. Uh, IMDb informs us that the uh, character's name is Jerry, played by one Tom Reese Farrell. Of course Um, that character's name is Jerry. (laughs) Correct. My, My only other observation about Jerry is how funny it is to me on several levels that his immediate proposal to Philip is let us go in together on like a Patriot <laughs> tours travel package. You're in the DC area, but not really. Uh, but uh, clearly Jerry does not understand this. Jerry's in Boston. They've got like some Paul Revere shit, uh, some like U S institutional, you know, government buildings, Jefferson Memorial, et cetera, et cetera. Jerry wants to go into business. This is part of this Ponzi scheme he's pitching. Jerry, like, puts all this out there just by reading Philip's name tag. Correct. He, like, the fact that he has come up with this entire business scheme for them. (laughs) In 12 seconds. In 12 seconds. Philip doesn't even have a drink. Like, he's just like... He's not even in the room yet. And Jerry is already like, we are retiring together, bro. <laughs> <laughs> and offers. And, 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 you know, this is, I think, the fun, maybe the funniest moment is the end of that scene is that Arena is, like, walking in or leaving the the conference hall. Oh, my God, and yeah. He's, and Jerry says, oh, Montreal, bonjour. Oh, Montreal. He, like, <laughs> right. says it, right. like, right. the French pronunciation, and I legitimately laughed out loud. <laughs> Jerry's just really, like, bringing it for us. Thank you so much, <laughs> Jerry. We appreciate you, and that's why you're our minor character of the week. Exactly. Okay, so let's get into Danielle Dossier. Actually, right. John, I would like to invite you to pose a question to me to start the dossier off. I did alert Danielle that I'd like to interject into this Danielle Dossier, and it's the scene towards the end of the episode. Philip is back from um, orchestrating the framing, but deserved framing, of the <laughs> Polish leader, 
Um, he has slept with the arena, found out he had a son, has a son, I should say. Uh, it's Misha. been a weekend. It's been, it's been, it's been a weekend. Comes back in, comes home. Hi, everybody. I'm home. No one gives a shit. Walks in. Paige and Henry are sitting there playing chess against one another. So Danielle did the fact that chess is like the most cliche possible (laughs) metaphor for political strategy or spycraft or just strategy generally at all trip your conspiracy theory uh, circuit breaker. Is that how the metaphor would work? Yeah, we'll take it. (laughs) Interesting. I hadn't really thought about like the chess part of this, but I do think that like, now that you're highlighting it and then the fact that they just do not care that he's back because they're so used to their parents being gone because they know that their parents are spies. (laughs) Like I think that all these things work together. So it wasn't necessarily the chess for me, but I think the chess just heightens the, like the hints the show is giving us that the kids know what's up. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, how, what else would you like to to offer in the dossier today? Okay. Today in the dossier, I think we need to talk a little bit about Chris Amendor. Uh, yes. And I think I brought this up before. My, my position on him is that he is sort of a double agent for the Russians within the, the like American system. And I think the fact that he's pushing Stan to step out on his wife is like a very big red flag in terms of doing so. I refuse to say whether there's any kernels of truth to this or not. (laughs) But if it were to be true, this would put a different spin on the what is Chris's relationship to Stan versus what is Gad's relationship to Stan. Because Gad, as we previously discussed, has the read on what is happening. Yeah. And Chris has seemingly zero clue, ostensibly zero clue that Stan has actually fallen, coercively fallen for Nina. Yeah. uh, Sergeyevna. Yeah. And I think that like, for me, the fact that Chris is pushing Stan to like sleep with, to sleep with someone outside of his marriage is like, it's another flag in the direction of Chris is running Stan from the Russian side and like knows what's up with Nina and knows that something is like happening there and is pushing him in that direction. Like, I think that there's a way to read the bar scene as like, Oh, he just like, what does he say? Like you need some strange, which like, again, very, very weird. No, thank you. Um, though I've watched enough like, trashy teen rom-coms to know that that is a thing that people say. Um, it's a thing that people say in, in st- yeah, stylized rom-coms. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, like, there's a way to read that scene where it's like, oh, just, like, loosen up, man. And I, my, in the dossier, I think we have to read that scene as, like, the loosen up in Nina's direction because I know I know that you're trying to go there anyway, and that helps whatever, like, thing I'm running to. Wonderful. Any other thoughts in the dossier you'd like to offer us? I mean, I think like the only other thought is, right. So I talked about this a little bit before, but just to bring it back in here that in general, I have like a theory that Elizabeth is running 
is running Philip, right? But that's, that's sort of my running theory this season. And I think now we maybe have Philip onto that a little bit, right? Where I think the fact that he lies to Elizabeth at the end of the episode and says that he doesn't, that he didn't sleep with Irina is like, there's something with that. I'm not exactly sure, but that seems like something we got to put in the dossier to come back to later. Do you have thoughts on that? Um, None that I can say out loud in this (laughs) podcast. Um, Do you think there's actually a son and do you think the son is actually, I know we briefly touched on this, but just to get you on the record in the dossier, do you think that Arena's son is indeed Arena and Philip's son? I think that there's a son. I don't think that it's Philip's son. Okay. Fair enough. Like, well, we'll, we will later discover the answer to this question. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that it's his son. All right. Um, okay. Time to go to gloss. Let's go to gloss. I would like to point out that, uh, and apologize to the audience that, uh, (laughs) there's a reference to Anna Karenina that is made by Claudia in this episode. The whole, like, sometimes a train runs somebody over or somebody falls in front of a train or whatever. That is apparently the internet later informed me after I watched an Anna Karenina reference uh, that's part of the threat to Elizabeth that uh, Claudia is going to have Elizabeth killed that I just totally flew over my head. So I apologize on behalf of all the Tolstoy heads out there. I mean, same. I have an uncle that just read War and Peace, and, like, at every family function for the last month, he's been like, you've got to read War and Peace. And I'm like, Uncle Charlie, the last thing I want to do in my life is read War and Peace. But now the joke in my family is like, like, oh, did that happen in War and Peace? So I feel like I want to push him to read Anna Karenina so that I can ask him that. You know what? I'm I'm here for anybody who wants to express their adoration of Tolstoy. I mean, I love Tolstoy. Love Anna Karenina never could have told you that that was a reference. <laughs> like the internet is smarter than me and I feel okay about that. Same. Um, um, there's lots of places in which it is not smarter yeah. than us, but on this one instance, <laughs> Anna Karenina trivia, it has bested us both. So I think the next thing is something that both of us hit on that I think we both <laughs> have in our notes, which is, <sighs> is every KGB illegal a travel agent (laughs) and if so that's a terrible idea because if you find one of them you're like oh i wonder if there are any other travel agents who seem to be gone all of the time on weird stuff never home never raising their kids and their kids are also spies yeah it's like oh don't love this um doesn't seem like a good plan to have everybody do this although a very convenient way for people to meet up without people asking questions. That's the thing. That's the thing. So I, I still think it's too risky given the, uh, the general, uh, the general strategy of the KGB running this program. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and I will say we will meet, if I remember correctly, at least two other KGB quote unquote illegals. Okay. So we will find, I don't think we find out their occupations, but we will meet some more, um, in later seasons. Um, next thing, Trains of continuity problem. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this is clearly the most important points we're going to make this entire episode. <laughs> so let's do it. We've got a lot of transit in the <sighs> metropolitan area expertise between the two of us. That's very true. I saw, like, the episode started and I was like, I don't know where that train station is, but let me tell you, it looks like the one in Huntington, Long Island. <laughs> like, the shape of the station is, like, so, like, 
Metro Transit Authority, like outside of the city, that I like it was painful for me for them to be like, this is Virginia. I've also been <laughs> at the Virgin at like the Virginia train stations and none of them look like that. And I'm pretty sure they didn't look like that in the eighties. Yeah. I will say we, I guess we should give the show credit that like, even though they were clearly at an MTA station on Long Island or Metro North up in yeah. Westchester, to your point, they at least got the, in, that they showed a couple seconds of an Amtrak train and not like an LIRR yes. train. Yes, I was waiting for like the 455 from Huntington to like pop on screen. <laughs> like with that have and like for Philip to be sitting in a car that have like very notice like the seats it is very clear what those seats look like at least in yes. the 80s. And so at least they like showed us an old old Amtrak train. Yeah. The additional travel continuity problem though is that so Philip is on the train from uh Huntington slash Virginia up north to New York City and having been on that train many a time over the years of coming from the roughly DC area back to New York City when I lived there you do not go over the Brooklyn Bridge and yet here they have (laughs) cut immediately from Philip and the train station on Long Island to the Amtrak train to like the classic shot of every uh, of every movie that somebody goes into New York, you're on the Brooklyn Bridge. Maybe it was the Manhattan Bridge, but I'm pretty sure it was the Brooklyn Bridge looking at lower Manhattan. That is not how the train from environs south of New York City gets into New York City. You go into Jersey, you cut, you're in the, in the tunnels yes. under the river into well, uh, Penn State. And to be fair, the railroad on Long Island also doesn't go like, the railroad's not going over the Brooklyn or the Manhattan Bridge. There's no, yeah, there there are subways over the Manhattan Bridge. There are no subways over the Brooklyn yeah. Bridge. So, listen, showrunners. You said there was a Grand Central continuity Oh, yes. There. Oh, my God. Oh, when he goes to meet her in the end, I'm like, this is not Penn Station, which... It's clearly Grand Central. Which There's is, no doubt about yeah, that. Yeah, clearly Grand Central, which is nicer. Um, <laughs> I guess now the, like, Moynihan um, uh, is, is nice, but, like, Grand Central has, like, beautiful architecture. Yeah. So they're clearly mm-hmm. in Grand Central. And I was like, okay, the train to Montreal, like, does not leave from Grand Central. No. I was feeling very angry about that, and I felt like I was channeling you and being frustrated by it. <laughs> I did definitely play a lot of it. To be fair, it's very obvious, like, pick out where in New York things are filmed, right? And it's actually, you can see it. So much of the uh, of the episode takes place in Lower Manhattan. They're, like, in City Hall Park. Like, that's yeah. where... Brilliant at least they're supposed Arena. to be in Manhattan this time. <laughs> Correct. Correct. <laughs> like, um my guess is that when uh, Elizabeth in the jet black wig stops uh, Dorwin, um, I'm pretty sure I know exactly where in Prospect Park, on uh, the big loop in Prospect Park, <laughs> they filmed that, um, having done many a bike ride along that loop. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. All right. I think that's probably it for Gloss. All right. Should we descend into the cave? <sighs> I guess. You want to take us? You want to take us down I, there? I I regret having volunteered to do this. You know, an hour ago. Um, It'll be quick. It'll be a uh, well a jaunt a jaunt into the, a jaunt into the cave. Yes. Yeah, so today, down in the cave with us is going uh, everyone's favorite Florentine, uh, Niccolo Machiavelli. I have that right, correct? I yeah, remember yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just like uh, what a great what a great honorific. Maybe. Um, 
I have to ask my colleague, I forget where in Italy she's from. If she's from the, I don't think she's from Florence, but if she were, she I know someone from Florence who would, would who would 1 million percent say that Machiavelli is everyone's favorite. (laughs) (laughs) He's very self-deprecating. Fair fair enough. (laughs) Everyone's not just our favorite, but everyone's favorite Florentine, uh, Niccolo Machiavelli. And I think that what prompts us to consider Machiavelli here is the attention that when one reads Machiavelli through uh, the feminist political theorist Hannah Pitkin's incredible book about Machiavelli called Fortune is a Woman, uh, that when one does that, Pitkin is really excellent at highlighting the ways in which and examining the ways in which Machiavelli on both a kind of like very almost intimate level mm-hmm. in terms of personal relationships, but then also at kind of more obviously and broadly political levels mm-hmm. is very concerned about the relationship between masculinity, violence, sex, and power. Would that be a fair way to put it? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a, that's a good way to put it. And I also think that like Machiavelli and Pitkin's reading of Machiavelli in particular are helpful because one of the things Pitkin is is highlighting there is like the relationship between masculinity and like truth with a capital T, mm-hmm. but that truth with a, mm-hmm. with a capital T is always subjective. And I yeah. think that that is productive for like engaging with the show writ large and, and particularly so in this episode. Yeah, so in this episode you have I mean, kind of the major plot point that we actually haven't really discussed, and that is that what uh, Philip and Arena are there to do in New York City is essentially entrap and then frame this yeah. Polish dissident leader um, for sexual assault of Arena. And there's something about the about like the famous slash infamous Machiavelli, Fortune is a woman, she must be subdued, mm-hmm. um, you know, for the political leader to succeed and to demonstrate their vertu, right? Their right. kind of their manliness. Specific, yeah, their kind of manly virtue. Um, that for me, like that was the thing that just clicked with this episode and the way in which this the closeness of political power to sexual violence yeah. in this episode is so finely drawn. Yeah. And I also think when like, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but like one of the things I appreciate about the sort of the, um, the use of sexual violence in this episode in particular is like, it's being weaponized against someone. And I think like, there's something Machiavellian and like Pitkin's reading of Machiavelli in that as well, because one of the things that Pitkin does, it's like pretty standard to, you know, read Machiavelli's like fortune is a woman and like she should be beaten into submission as like, oh, Machiavelli is just like a huge misogynist, which like he is, don't worry. However, there is a way to read that and Pitkin really, really services this as like, but also there might be this latent sort of like, energy or 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 challenge that women can pose to men which like Machiavelli is saying beat down but we can we can take from that like something more generative and I think Pitkin wants to read the masculine and feminine out of Machiavelli as much more closely intertwined and I think the weaponizing of sexual assault one, that the assault doesn't actually occur, or at least I, we're right. sort of meant to believe it doesn't occur. It, I mean, it doesn't occur, right? Because, well, there's a different kind of assault that occurs, right? Arena is like, okay, I'm ready. 
And like, as a first time viewer, I would imagine the first thought is like for them to have sex or something. Yeah. When in fact, it's for Philip to like violently beat her. Yeah. So that so that they can take pictures of it to then use to frame. Yeah. Uh, Belly Yeah. So I think like Irina weaponizing her body and the the presumed vulnerability of like her body or like the female body against um, the Polish leader, like for her, you know, sort of an, an extension of her own empowerment. I think there's something Machiavellian there too, right? Like we can read it through Pitkin or we can also just say like that, like this is Irina sort of like stepping into her own, her own power and Machiavelli would be on board for that. Are you suggesting that this is really uh, an episode inspired by the Mandragola? Always. Always. <laughs> Every episode of the American is inspired by the Mandragola. You know that I love I love the Mandrake Root. It's the best work of Machiavelli's. We both show a very weird version of it to our students. <laughs> students love it. It's very weird, but like For a long time this was the only version yeah. of the Mandrake Root on the internet is like a community theater oh my God. production from like the very early 2010s. Highly recommend it's like you should watch it. But like, (laughs) yeah, I mean, is the Americans just a reimagination of the Mandrake route? Probably. We'll probably have to get back into that, but we better get out of this cave before we like, (laughs) I could go on about, I, I wrote on Machiavelli for comps and it's probably, he's probably the thinker besides Plato that I like have the most to say about and have the most knowledge of. So like, we got to get out of the cave. <laughs> All right. Um, this is going to be great for when we have our friend, John Keller on. Amazing. Who also knows a ton about Machiavelli. Oh my um, God. <laughs> we'll, he will probably take John and Niccolo to the cave uh, on that episode. Love. And I guess this means that uh, Machiavelli gets to come back out of the cave with us. Yeah. But I think what it sounds like for me. now we're, we're chaining him to the wall because like <laughs> some of that stuff is wild. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. But he, unlike others, uh, he might be freed. Yeah, later yeah, on. yeah, yeah. We're we're we'll review or we'll, the we'll tape. We'll go visit him. Yeah, others will stay down there and not receive our visits. But uh, oh my god, Mickey uh. will will show up for it. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Well, I think we've come to the end of our episode. I think that's true. Join us next time for season one, episode eight of The Americans, which is titled Mutually Assured Destruction, which makes me very excited. Um, On Not Quite Great Books. A TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. It's created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.
should, um, we should probably figure out what, what the end yeah. actually is at some point. Um, um, well, join us next time when we dig into season one, episode eight on like, not quite great books. I was sorry. I thought we were doing the episode. Title. <laughs>